I'm going to ask that you take your Bibles this morning, turn to 1 Peter. This morning, we're going to be looking at spiritual war, 1 Peter chapter 5. Now, that is a long way from the book of Daniel in your Bible, but that passage in 1 Peter is very close to Daniel 10 in terms of theme. We're going to spend time in 1 Peter chapter 5 in Luke 21, and finally Ephesians 6. So we'll not actually look at Daniel 10 this morning. This is in preparation for that next week. Daniel 10 also dealing with spiritual war. Um, I'll tell you, uh, um, this morning in the, in the choir, um, I uh, was singing and my voice is giving way. I've struggled with a cold all week and... Um, kind of cutting in and out some, and uh, I wasn't alone in that. Um, I, I can say, though, that that choir song was sung with the appropriate amount of passion and enthusiasm. And um, the goal in our worship together is not to be something that we are not. We are not attempting to be professional. We are not attempting to be We're not publishing any CDs, okay? We're not attempting to be something that we're not, but we are trying to come before the Lord sincerely in worship. Last week, I shared a quote with the choir before uh, we sang the song last week. It's been on my mind this week. It's from Beethoven, the great great, uh, musician. He wrote many uh, great anthems of Christianity in his day. He was a believer, a real believer, and he said that to play the wrong note is insignificant, which is not a small thing for a composer to say, but to play the wrong note is insignificant, but to play without passion is inexcusable. And I think that's a good theme for our worship together. We may sing the wrong note, we may not make it through the song, something may jump in and remind us of all of our human limitations, And that's okay. That is insignificant. But it is inexcusable not to remind ourselves, passionately so, how great our God is and what He continues to do for us. The promises that He has made. Now let's read 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to His eternal glory, By Christ Jesus. After you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now the passage reminds us of several things. Namely, that we face a spiritual enemy as Christians. We face an enemy. This enemy will inflict suffering upon us. And it says that we suffer and others suffer as well. We are reminded that the suffering is temporary. 
And then that the suffering is something through which God will in fact work. Perfecting, establishing, strengthening, and settling us. Now, I have three portions to the sermon this morning. I give this to you to make it easy to follow. The first is distraction. We're talking about spiritual war, so we're going to talk about distraction. The second is watchfulness. There is no war that's successfully fought without a sense of watchfulness. And the third is readiness or preparedness. Readiness. So in the passage that we just read, Peter calls Christian people to humility. Verse 6 says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And if you look at verse 7, you will find that one of the ways we are to express humility is by casting all of our care upon Him because He cares for you. Casting all, and you probably have heard that over the years. There was a children's song that I grew up singing, cast all your cares upon him for he cares for you. You may have heard this phrase, and we're told this is an expression of humility. One of the ways that we express our humility is by giving our burdens, our cares to God. But it raises the question, what is a care? What is a care exactly? The word care is a word used by Jesus and Paul in the New Testament to speak of what we might call anxiety, you might use worry or stress or pressure. Four times Jesus uses the word care in the phrase, the cares of this world. Day-to-day things, burdens, problems, issues, threats, worries, the sort of things that we face that cause anxiety. I would describe our cares as the pressure that we feel to have the things around us right and safe and happy in our lives. Right and safe and good in our lives. There is a pressure there that we have things right and in a good place, not merely now, but also as we look toward the future and as we anticipate what's coming, as we think about years ahead. Pressure to have things work out in a way that is right and safe and good. Peter is telling us, to lay aside the burden of that, the burden of making everything right and safe and good, to cast these cares upon God. And then he gives us a reason, because God as our Father cares for us, and he is actually happy to bear the pressures of providing what it is that we need. He's a good father. Good fathers do not begrudgingly provide what's needed. They're happy to provide for what's needed. They're capable. They're able of providing what's needed. Now, if you leave your finger here in 1 Peter 5, we're going to come back to it, so leave a bookmark unless you're really fast with the text. But we're going to spend some time, as I told you, in Luke 21. Turn to Luke 21. We're going to read verse 34 because as you will see, Peter is not getting this idea on his own. Of course, he's being led by the Spirit of God as he writes But he also had a teacher that he was a disciple of. And Jesus also has something to say here. Something from which I'm sure Peter is drawing on and has drawn regularly by this time in his life from. And under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, Peter now writes something very similar to what the Lord Jesus said in Luke 21, 34. And what do we find there? Well, Jesus warns us to be careful to take heed to yourselves 
lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. You see that phrase, the cares of this life, and there it is. Be careful, lest your hearts be weighed down. That idea of our hearts being weighed down by the anxieties of the world, that is what I mean when I say distraction, distraction. We should not be weighed down by these things. God is in control and he is trustworthy and nevertheless we are weighed down by things from time to time that we should not be weighed down, weighed down by and perhaps live very distracted lives. And I trust this morning that you know that feeling, to have a heart that is weighed down. You might use the phrase, a heavy heart, from time to time. Or you might simply describe the weight on the heart that Jesus is talking about here as the word pressure. Pressure. Weight. Now Jesus mentions three things. Carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this world. The word carousing in this verse is unique in all the scriptures. You'll only find it here in the New Testament. It's really a word in Greek described describing the effects of drunkenness. It is a word that speaks to the giddiness of being drunk, but also to the consequences of drunk, specifically the pain of it, a hangover. Pain, that's what the word speaks to. It's the suffering associated with drunkenness. Drunkenness was a big problem in the ancient world. It's a big problem today. Life is hard. People have different ways of dealing with it. Whether they want to lose sight of something for a little while, just unwind, find a way to alleviate the pressure of the day, drunkenness has always been a big deal. And there are other sorts of sins and pleasures that we give ourselves to, to alleviate the pressure. There are ways that we deal with stress and anxiety, some which seem overtly sem uh, sinful, some are just distracting, some just to take our mind off of things. There is suffering that accompanies sin in the world, and of all the sorts of sin, that we might experience, there is a suffering associated with it, a natural suffering that follows. Every sinful thing has a hangover. Every sinful thing has a form of natural suffering that follows because God is good and His Word is meant for our goodness. Christian people are not to live then distracted by sin. And I want to tell you, I'm glad that drunkenness is specifically mentioned here because I think it speaks very capably to all sorts of addictions and repetitive behaviors that people give themselves to as a manner of dealing with their lives. I think it's very able. Overconsumption of alcohol was simply the most readily available substance that people in the ancient world had to abuse. But we have lots of addictions today, don't we? We have so many. And of course, why do we have so many? Because anything that is addictive is somewhat profitable, and there's always someone interested in profiting from us. So there are all sorts of addictions, uh, not just in terms of substance, but also in terms of just human thinking and psychology, the way we emotionally deal with our problems. Some of these things that people get addicted to today are almost laughable for other people. Like how in the world could someone get addicted to something like that? And it might not take you very long to think of something like, how in the world can this person spend all of their money online shopping? How, they don't need all of that stuff. What are they doing? How in the world could someone deal with the pressure of this by watching all of that stuff? They just sit in front of the TV and watch this over and over. What kind of waste of time is this? And, and whatever it is, people have these repetitive, habitual ways of dealing with the stress of their life. Some of them substance abuse and others of them just mental alleviation, things that we fall back on to deal with 
with the care and pressure of society. Sin, and when I say sin, I mean specifically the sinful nature inside of us that leans on things other than the strength of God to deal with the pressures of anxiety. Our sinfulness can make a master out of any mundane thing. It can enslave the soul to any selfish pursuit, to any desire or lust. And really, what someone is saying when they have these crutches in their lives that they simply cannot function well and happily without is they're saying, I need to be doing this because unless I am, the whole focus of my life is shifted to the things that I don't know how to deal with I don't know how to think through, and I, I can't find peace in. I need my life distracted, hijacked by other things, so that I am not left to my thoughts when it comes to the things that are important. And you see in this verse, Jesus mentions the cares of this life, which is just what Peter was concerned with in 1 Peter 5. It's the same, same idea. These are the cares that Peter says we should cast toward God. Now Jesus is saying, these anxieties weigh down the soul. They weigh down the human heart. Look at how Jesus finishes the verse. Don't miss this. Luke 21, 34. Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, the cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly. You see, distraction. That's when, when something comes on us unexpectedly. We're not looking out for it. We're not prepared for it. We're not ready for it. We're distracted by something. The day is going to come, and this is a sobering thought, the day is going to come when you are going to be face to face with Jesus. Take heed to yourselves. Listen to Jesus here. He is warning you. He is speaking to us. Take heed. Listen. Be careful. Lest your hearts be weighed down by carousing, by drunkenness, by the cares of this life, and you become distracted by these things so that the day of my return comes on you unexpectedly. Unexpectedly. I wonder how many people here this morning are prepared to meet Jesus. How many people here this morning are living with the mind focused on that? How many of us on the other hand, are living very distracted lives. We will meet Jesus. For some, it will be quite unexpectedly. Whether we meet him on the day of his return, as Luke 21 has in focus here, or whether we meet Jesus on the day of our death, as many other passages speak of, life is a fleeting thing, and we will give an account for it unto the Lord. Are we living with an expectation of creatures that we will meet our Creator? Or are we distracted? We take a moment and I just ask you now to consider that question. I can't answer that for you. Maybe someone sitting next to you can offer insight who knows you better. But, but we take a moment and ask yourself that question. Is my heart weighed down by things that are actually in fact distracting me from my meeting with Jesus? Well, what kind of things am I supposed to be paying attention to? What should I have in view? What am I being distracted from? God is working out a plan of redemption in the world around us. It's not always apparent. It's not always easy to see. 
But as Christians, we know this to be true. Our lives should be somewhat of a testimony to this. As he's working out this plan of redemption, Christ is preparing to return to this earth to judge sin and evil permanently. I don't mean to slap you on the wrist when you do something wrong. No, no, no. As part of God's plan for redemption, Jesus will be returning to thoroughly and permanently deal with human sin. Evil is at work in the world right now. And you are called to be light in the midst of that evil. To be good in the midst of that evil, to be light in the midst of that darkness, representing the one who is coming to eradicate it. What is distracting you from that? Be careful. Be careful that you are not distracted from what is actually happening. That's part one, distraction. And now we move to the second part, watchfulness. Watchfulness. Look at verse 36 of Luke 21. Here Jesus tells us how to approach our life. Instead of being distracted, we should live with watchfulness. I'm skipping verse 35, which says, The day of the Lord will come as a snare for those who dwell on the earth because they are distracted, they are not prepared for it. Verse 36 tells us how we should be prepared for the Lord's return, it says. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Watch therefore. The word Jesus uses, the word watch, is the word in the Greek, agripneo, agripneo. Now you might notice it begins with the letter A, ah, alpha in Greek. When you see a word that begins with the letter A, it often is throwing the rest of the word into the negative sense. Ah, in the Greek, agripneo. The rest of the word means sleep. So we are not supposed to be sleeping. That's the idea of the word here, agripneo. He's not saying watch as in look up at the pretty sky and the birds that are in the air. He's not saying watch and and look at this interesting thing that's in front of me. No, he's saying watch in the sense of do not be caught sleeping as it concerns your meeting with me, my return, the judgment of sin and evil that accompanies my return. Do not be caught sleeping. We say things like that. We say don't sleep on what's happening over here. If you're a sports fan, you might say, hey, we can't be sleeping on this team over here. The idea of sleeping on something means not paying the attention to it that it should deserve. It means ignoring something that's actually significant, developing over here in favor of something over here that we're fascinated by. We're sleeping on it. We're not paying attention. Actually, something significant is happening, and no one's looking for it. You know what? That's very true of Christian living. We know Jesus is going to return. We know he is going to set up his kingdom. The Bible speaks to these things. We believe we will stand before him when we die. These are core Christian ideals. We know intellectually that this is in fact very important. And yet, we are tempted to live our lives so focused on other things that this future meeting with Jesus is treated with a sense of insignificance by the way we conduct ourselves. Yeah, I know that I will meet Jesus when I die but I really need to focus on my job right now. I understand. I understand. Yes, I know that Jesus is coming to set up his kingdom, but I have to sell through all of this inventory. 
I have to increase sales. I have to improve delivery time. Whatever it is for you. We have to get this much out the door. I know his kingdom is coming, but I am right here. And we have to be focused on this right now. I know that Jesus is coming to judge evil. I know that unbelieving sinners, according to God's word, not Pastor Reggie, will be cast into the lake of fire, which is eternal judgment. But it's actually very important that I finish this film series that I've been working on. I want to listen to the end of this podcast. I want to see the end of this show. I got to get to the end of this book. And brothers and sisters, I understand. I mean, these are words that can flow from my mouth. I understand. But the day in which you will stand before the Lord Jesus is not insignificant. The day in which your neighbor will stand before the Lord Jesus is not insignificant. Whether you live until the return of Christ, whether you die this afternoon on your way home from this service, when you meet Jesus, you will not be saying, well, that was nice. Let's get back to these other things now. When you stand before Jesus, all of the other things are dust and ash. And all that will remain is his judgment of your life. All that will remain is eternity. I'm reminded of that sometimes and how quickly we move on from things that were just moments ago so significant. All the pent-up energy getting ready for something that you're preparing for, that you're doing, the culmination of all of your hard work. Maybe it's a celebratory moment of a project that you've been working on for so long and now it's going to finish. And the moment that it's gone, now what comes next? Now what's next? What can I look forward to next? Your meeting with Jesus will not be like that. It won't be like that. There should be a watchfulness. Now if you turn back to back to 1 Peter chapter 5. Remember that Peter is calling us to cast all of our cares upon the Lord our God, just as in Luke 21, Jesus is warning us about being weighed down with these same worldly cares, and then something interesting happens. Just as Jesus in Luke 21 says that we are to be watchful, so Peter too says that we are supposed to be watchful. 1 Peter 5, 8. It's funny how that happens in the Bible, the more you read and the more you study, the more you find the simplicity of the message repeated because we need it repeated. Be sober. Be vigilant, verse 8. Because your adversary, the devil, works, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, I found that very interesting because where Jesus is telling us to be watchful and live in a strong way, a worthy way because he's going to return, Peter's message is be watchful because there is an enemy who wants to destroy you. The words that Peter uses here are also significant. In the New King James, which is what I'm preaching from, the words are sober and vigilant. The ESV uses the words be sober-minded, be watchful. Both of the words simply mean watchful, but they each speak to a different aspect of being watchful. Throughout the rest of the Bible, these words are often translated simply as watchful. In fact, in the prior chapter, 1 Peter chapter 4, the word that we read as sober here in the New King James 
is interpreted in verse 7, translated as simply the word watchful. The word vigilant throughout the New Testament that we see here in the Greek is the same Greek word routinely translated as watchful in the New Testament. So Peter is literally saying, it could be read in English, be watchful, be watchful, twice. And yet he's saying it twice because each word speaks to a different aspect of watchfulness. The first word sober in the New King James speaks to the seriousness of what we are watching for. You should be serious as you are watching. This is not, hey, watch this funny video. Hey, watch this silly thing. Hey, did you happen to see what happened over here? This is pay attention because this person is violent and dangerous and would destroy you if given the chance. Watch out for this person. And then the second word speaks to the discipline of our watchfulness, that we should not be sleeping, similar to the message in Luke 21. We might say something like this, wake up. You know, wake up, it's not as if we're actually rousing someone from a literal sleep, but we're trying to rouse them out of their mental slumber. Pay attention. Wake up. Stop messing around with this. Pay attention. Watch. Whereas in Luke 21, we are called to watch for our meeting with Jesus. Peter now is calling us to watch for our enemy. And here I don't see two separate messages. I see two sides of the same coin. They're two separate instructions, but they speak to the same spiritual reality. There is a good and righteous God who is coming to judge evil. So watch for Jesus. And there is an evil, malicious spirit at work in the world who would see you destroyed by the judgment of that God in your sin. So watch for Satan. As Christians, we are not to be asleep at the wheel, distracted by life, weighed down by sin and its consequences. We are to live in the present world with an eye toward unseen things. Do you live with an eye towards unseen things. What would someone else's evaluation of you be? If they saw your planner or your agenda for the week, if you had a supervisor following you around and notating how you spent your time, not just at work or whatever you report to, but from the beginning of the day to the end, and at the end of the week you opened the journal and you reviewed it, would there be indications throughout this journal of your activity that you are living in a watchful way towards spiritual things that you anticipate are around you and are coming? That's a hard question. I doubt many of us would perform very well at that test. I don't think I would perform great at that test. Certainly not all the time. It's a challenge, and it's meant to be a challenge. And you could do two things with that. You can just kind of brush it aside and say, yeah, I guess I should be focusing more on that. I guess I should be paying more attention and kind of, you know, just okay, yeah, message received, I've got it. Or you can actually look at whatever that mental planner says of how you've conducted your life and you could say, what changes should I make here? Now, I would propose to you that the proportion to which you are willing to do the work of adjusting your planner whether it exists only in your mind or on some paper or Outlook file somewhere, the proportion to which you are willing to make adjustments is a good reflection of the seriousness of your watchfulness. Because I guarantee you, if you are facing an IRS audit next week, 
there would be significant changes made to prepare for what was coming. Why? Because the day is appointed, it is going to happen, and it is a serious thing. The proportion to which you are willing to hear a message like this and actually respond says more about you than the message. Now, you can point to me and say, well, you know, that's a pastor. He didn't do a very good job or he didn't give us enough examples. There weren't enough parables in there. There were not enough practical instructions. Okay, that's fine. Point the finger up here or at the text or at other people as much as you want. But you hear the warning here. You hear the call to live seriously, to live diligently in anticipation of the Lord's return and the, and the enemy at work around you. The proportion to which you're willing to respond says far more about your seriousness here than about whatever other things you could cast blame or fault towards. There should be a seriousness about this. Um, third part of the message, we'll close with this. Readiness. Okay, I know Jesus is coming to judge evil and unbelieving sinners will be cast into the lake of fire. I know that I will give an account to the Lord for how I live. But what about readiness now? What about readiness? You will notice that Peter says at the beginning of verse 9, Resist him, steadfast in the faith. Know that these same sufferings are experienced by your brothers in the world. Resist this enemy. How does one do that? And I'll ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. This is a well-known passage, one that uh, is referenced often as the armor of God. You know, we know what the armor of God is. We know it's in the Bible. Let's consider it for a second this morning to be implemented in spiritual war. Ephesians 6, we'll begin in verse 10. I'm just going to read a verse or two and make some observations as we go. What does the Lord say to us through the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6? Okay, verse 10. 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So, first thing, we need to be strong. We need to be strong. That sounds simple. But notice that the strength here is a strength in the Lord. Now, um, we might be missing the metaphor here, so don't lose it. We're talking about armor. In order to put on armor, in order to bear the weight of armor, it requires a certain amount of strength. Some of you are in the military. I've never been in the military. Um, I've heard stories about people in the military that it's not merely that they have to get physically fit, but they have to get accustomed to carrying the weight that they're going to be expected to carry should they be in certain situations. They have to be willing to bear a load. The load might involve some kind of armor or weaponry, ration, supply, whatever it is, but it requires a strength that's not common to bear it. You wouldn't take a gangly person unprepared to do it and expect him to bear a load as if he were a seasoned military person. So in ancient times... It's also true that when someone put on armor, they had to grow accustomed to it and be prepared to bear the weight of that armor. It required a certain strength. You might remember David in the Old Testament preparing to face Goliath, being given by uh, uh, Saul a very uh, a wealthy gift of wearing the king's armor, and he tries it on, and what does he say? This does not fit. I cannot bear this. He's not accustomed to these things. It's not, he had not gotten used to the, the weight of these things. He hadn't born male. He hadn't born that kind of leather. He couldn't move in it. He found it cumbersome. So if we are going to prepare ourselves to live a life ready for the Lord's return, 
ready to face an enemy that is around us, we must be strong. We have to be strong in the Lord. We have to put on the armor of God. Notice the enemy is mentioned in verse 11. The devil. Not a fairy tale. A real person. A real spiritual entity. An unseen entity that manipulates and controls the world around us, for he's called the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. If we're going to face him, we should not do so unarmored. What should we do? Well, verse 12 and 13 says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. I think these verses tell us that we should know who our enemy is. Only a fool doesn't think about his enemy. There's an ancient Chinese manual of war that's often quoted and used, the art of war, by a famous Chinese historical general, Sun Tzu, The Art of War. And he has a quote about this. He says, If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained you will suffer defeat. In other words, it doesn't matter how great you perform on one battlefield. If you do not know your enemy, your defeat is right around the corner. And of course, this is not news to us. In ancient times, there were scouts that kept an eye on the enemy, that were watchful of the enemy that followed its movements, that tracked its provisions, that looked for weaknesses, that recognized its own deficiencies to face what was coming. There were scouts. Now we have satellites, drones, intelligence agencies, because there's a great emphasis if war is to be successfully fought in knowing the enemy that you're fighting against. Some people get this wrong. They think their enemy is flesh and blood. They think their enemy is this person who's wronged them or this governing official who's doing something that prohibits them or that gets in the way of them. This is my enemy. This person must be condemned. This person must be put down. This person must be dealt with. This person must be eliminated. This person must be avoided. Your enemy is not flesh and blood. Your enemy is a spiritual enemy at power and at work in the world. And it will do you no good nor anyone else around you, sir or ma'am to make an enemy out of other people who are merely victims. The next verse, verse 14, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. How then should we live? Got our armor on? Truthfully? Righteously? And with a message. With a message. That's what a gospel is. It's a message. And this is a message of peace, which is an odd thing to say when you are telling someone that they are in a war. Isn't it? But we have a message of peace. Not peace with our enemy, but peace with our God. Peace with our king, with our commander. We are fighting against an enemy to which his followers will have no peace. We offer peace because our our war is not with them. We live truthfully. As much as depends upon us, we might fail in that, but we live honestly. We live sincerely. We live with a message of truth, and we try to live that message out righteously. 
We might look strange for doing that. We may not look like we belong in the armies around us of people. The masses of people around us are not following the Lord God. We may look very differently. We live righteously and we live with the message. Verse 17 says, And we take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We take the helmet of salvation, which is the Word of the Spirit. I skipped one, sorry. Verse 16, We take the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. In other words, there's going to be suffering. The fiery darts here was a military reference to flaming arrows. There's going to be pain. If you read much military history, you might find that there's a lot of conjecture about how much damage the fire in an arrow actually did. That wasn't the point. It was to scare and intimidate and to inflict suffering, additional pain, additional fear. We're supposed to deal with suffering by faith. We know what God has promised us. We know who we are. We're prepared to deal with suffering. And then the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, When we put on the helmet of salvation, we are granted access to the Spirit of God, and we are given our weapon, God's Word. To handle that rightly requires the Holy Spirit of God. Um, the, The Word of God is an interesting thing, because at first, when you become acquainted with it, it appears to only cut you. It speaks to you, and to how you must live, and to what you must do, and to problems in your life. But when you become able to wield it, it no longer cuts you to the same degree. It becomes a great defense because it speaks truth into evil. It speaks truth into unrighteousness. It gives you a sense of security about who you are and what you're doing. It speaks capably. It speaks well to those around you who themselves are encountering God's word for the first time. We're supposed to become masterful with our weapon. Verse 18 says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication with the saints. And here again, we have the same message, don't we? You may read that and not see what it says. When we pray, we are casting all of our cares upon God, aren't we? That's what praying with supplication is. So we're supposed to be casting our cares towards Him, praying uh, to the Lord. And then it says, being watchful which we encountered in Peter's letter and in the words of Jesus in Luke 21. We're supposed to be casting our cares upon Him and being able and watchful. Now that's the message this morning. There is a spiritual war around us. Next week in Daniel 10, we'll look at what, for my money, is probably the spookiest chapter in the Bible. Um, It speaks so casually to things that for us are not casual at all. And I think before going into Daniel 10, it would be good for you this week to ask yourself how serious you are about the return of the Lord and the existence of evil in the world. What your worldview is and whether or not it allows for a struggle against spiritual things instead of flesh and blood. Our goal is not to defeat some political party or some government person. Our goal is not to defeat some teacher who's saying something we don't like. Some person in the community who's tormenting us and giving us a hard time. Our struggle is not with them. There is something going on behind what is seen. It would be good for you this week, before looking at Daniel 10, to think about whether or not you live your life with a worldview to that, with a mind toward that. Let's close with a word of prayer and we'll observe the Lord's Supper. Father in heaven,
as we pray for freedom from sin. Help us not to be naive or ignorant as to how one fights sin and deals with sin. Help us to not ask for the sort of deliverance that we are unwilling to pursue. Help us to be watchful and to be serious, to be prepared for spiritual conflict around us, to expect temptation, to expect suffering, to expect from time to time a combative world to resist us. Help us to to pray and prepare for these resistances and difficulties in faith, understanding your word, living our lives with right conduct, sharing a message of peace and salvation. Father, keep us from stumbling. Keep us from distracted living. Help us to see what's before us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.